Jewish Money Matters, episode 272, How to Approach Investing and Financial Planning with founder of RVW Wealth, Selwyn Gerber. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth, to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry, to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm pleased to introduce you to a fiduciary financial advisor who is also clear on and comfortable with the Jewish perspective on money and wealth creation, Selwyn Gerber. Selwyn is an economist, CPA, and investment advisor. He's a founding member and chief strategist of RVW Wealth, wealth advisors primarily using a low-cost ETF-based asset allocation model combined with secured bonds and select alternative investments. A lot of the things that we've talked about on the show before. But let's get started with, first of all, what is a fiduciary? Selwyn explains to us, and specifically, why should we be looking for one? And how do you look for the right advisor? Say, Selwyn and I talk about timing. Should you be deterred from working with someone if you haven't built a lot of wealth yet? The role of our emotions when it comes to investing and much, much more. In fact, I consider this uh, episode a mini crash course on stock market investing and financial planning in and of itself. Um, So you might want to take notes. Here's the wonderful Selwyn Gerber. Selwyn Gerber, welcome to Jewish Money Matters. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you? Good morning. Good afternoon. Uh, fantastic. Thank you. Another glorious day in California. And delighted to be on the show because you have such a you know such an important audience who need help so badly, especially in these troubled times. So hopefully, yeah. uh, it's going to be a productive and useful exchange for the for the viewers. I know. I know it will. I feel like this is going to be a very powerful conversation because it's both going to be practical and I think refreshing for listeners to hear from a person of your caliber with so much, so much extent, so such a long, so long experience in the industry, in the financial services industry and wealth planning, financial advisory, but also somebody who comes to this from a really, a, a really a perspective of honesty, of transparency, um, of of sim- simplicity, simplifying things, you know, words that we don't often associate with the financial services industry. So I'm really excited for us to get to chat. With that, I thought we could get started with your journey up to now, because I know you are the founding member and chief strategist at RV Wealth. Wealth and I'd like to start by asking you, what was that career journey? I know there's an interesting path that even led you to Hollywood, perhaps. So trace the dots for us a little bit. So oh, well, interesting. Well, I was born in South Africa, as you can probably tell from this accent, that uh, despite the fact that I arrived in this great country in 1977, uh, the accent has not yet disappeared because I never made it. It doesn't go by itself. Um, I was born in South Africa. My parents were born in South Africa. Grandparents, of course, from Lithuania, Latvia, as most of the Jewish immigration did come, and uh, we arrived here 77, four generations to restart our lives um, in Los Angeles, and it's been quite successful. Uh, I was the chartered accountant in South Africa, became a CPA here, worked for the big firms, 
And in about 1978-79, uh, I joined a, a business management firm, which basically means you're the CFO, CEO in many ways, except for creation, creative stuff, of celebrities. And so we represented, and I spent a decade of my life representing the who's who of Hollywood. I just said, so you know, um, if we didn't have them, they weren't, weren't wanted by us. So we had Streisand, Spielberg, Springsteen, Fonda, Dreyfus, The Eagles, Quincy Jones, Neil Young, Rod Stewart. Had them all. I mean, basically, we had the list. Um, and it was a very interesting time for me personally. Uh, the beginning was extremely exciting. Uh, you know, a kid from uh, Cape Town arrives in Los Angeles and hanging out with the, you know, the important people. And slowly over time, you realize that they're not so important. They're not so amazing. And many of them are tragically flawed uh, in ways that are indescribable. But you probably know. So uh, in 1987, I started my own CPA firm, left there in an act of, in retrospect, uh, insanity. Uh, pregnant wife, number of kids, not much money. And uh, started my own CPA firm, which today is uh, 50 people in Century City doing a uh, terrific job. We don't focus on the entertainment business anymore because in many ways it represented many of the values that I actually eschew and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and don't embrace. Of course, there are exceptions. And I was very honored to work with several of those exceptions, by the way. But as a general, um, a general motif, the entertainment business does not represent the values that I uh, was seeking at that point. And um, so I started my own CPA firm. Was, as I said, it started off quite successfully. And it's continuing to this day to be a terrific firm with a good reputation. Uh, in about 2000, uh, I realized that the Wall Street shenanigans were just that, mostly shenanigans and started my own wealth management firm, uh, which we called RVW, uh, named after the uh, American icon Rip Van Winkle, because mm. the one thing we sought to promise our investors uh, was peaceful sleep. And there was no better example of that than, than old Rip himself, who, who taught us all that long sleep without being woken up by your, pan, your panicking, frantic uh, stockbroker or, you know, or spouse or children worrying about financial insecurity uh, the peace of mind that, that enables you to sleep, uh, you know, restfully is the core promise that we make to our wealth management clients. Um, and uh, we, we have a terrific business. We manage almost a billion dollars now. Our clients don't like us. They love us, which is the goal. We're not looking to create uh, satisfied clients. Uh, I read a book a long time ago called Raving Fans, and uh, it kind of inspired me to realize that what you want is not satisfied clients. Satisfied clients are simply satisfied this week. And that satisfaction may go away next week if they perceive something different. Um, what we wanted to create was a group of great raving fans, mm-hmm. uh, people who are so overwhelmed by the good treatment that they actually talk about it to their friends. And uh, that's been the, the really the, the hallmark of what we do is to seek to create raving fans and to earn that designation by doing things that dazzle them with our dedication, our sincerity, our focus on their own situations, uh, our management of risk in a way that's appropriate for them, um, and most importantly, uh, the status which we have as investment advisors, which is one of fiduciaries. It's a big topic, and I would like to get into it at some point, but there are two classes of investment advisors. One group are called fiduciaries in the mm-hmm. traditional sense, and the other do not have a fiduciary responsibility. They have what's called a suitability responsibility. That is very different. And when you're ready to, uh, to dig into that, I'm certainly more than willing to pick it up. But for right now, I'm going to bounce the ball back into your side of the court. 
I think I think we're, we should go through that because you already mentioned the Wall Street shenanigans. And part of that is this suitability standard versus what really we're going we're looking for is a fiduciary. So why don't you explain to us the clear difference so that our listeners can start identifying, oh, so this is what I need to be pursuing, this type of relationship, this type of manager. Why don't you describe the distinction between fiduciary and the suitability? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a little story, and then you'll understand it, and then I'll give you a little more detail. When I was in South Africa, and I'm not sure it's the case now because it was a very long time ago, it was illegal for a doctor to earn any share of a pharmacy. Hmm. That's the same idea. If I am your physician, I have a choice about what I prescribe. And if I own a share of the pharmacy, I'm going to be incentivized, motivated, rewarded for prescribing you know, compounded, complex, exotic drugs, instead of saying, look, take a couple of aspirin and if it still hurts in the morning, call me back or something, you know, more off the counter or generic, you have a conflict. And the conflict when you don't have a fiduciary requirement is that you get your cruises, your bonuses, your health insurance, your, your, your pension plan from people who have an incentive in making sure you push their products. Mm -hmm. And so most of those products, therefore, are laden with fees, commissions, kickbacks, and incentives. And when you go to somebody for financial advice, and, you know, we do regard finances as sacred. We regard, and I'll come back to that, but, you know, as a Jewish orientation, I'd like to deal with that at some point in the conversation as well. The money is sacred in the Jewish view. It's not just stuff. It's sacred energy, it's sacred power. It it conveys it conveys and confers upon the person who has it rights, obligations about how you view money. It is sacred. Yeah. And therefore, um, you know, we need to make sure that money is treated appropriately. And fiduciary means literally that we place, not we, anyone who's a fiduciary, places the well being of their client ahead of their own. So if you hire a trustee in a trust you've created, that trustee has a fiduciary duty to the beneficiaries. Um, and that applies to us as well. We're in the category of wealth advisors called fiduciaries. That means we literally, number one, cannot take kickbacks, commissions, incentives, motivation of any kind. Um, we don't, even the pen I'm holding here is our pen that we paid for ourselves. We get nothing from anybody in RVW Wealth. So that means when we give advice, and anybody who's a fiduciary does this, um, you know, we give advice with the only uh, concern being the well-being of each client. Uh, that's not the case for people who have suitability. All they have to do is make sure that the investment is, quote-unquote, suitable. So, for example, if I were advising you and uh, you know, I work for one of the Wall Street firms and I said to you, well, you know, for you, the perfect investment is a series of Bitcoins, some soybean options, and, you know, the rest in Tesla, um, you know, or Peloton or something, um, that would not be a suitable investment for you. But on the other hand, if I suggested to you, let's say, a mutual fund, there was a well-diversified mutual fund, um, that might be a suitable investment, even though there's a 5% upfront load and large annual fees, uh, a network, by the way, multiple names. The Wall Street machine has been very adept at creating so many names for their fees and charges, that no matter what, what word you come out with, they'll come up with some very low fee. Like there's management fees, administrative fees, marketing fees, compliance fees, regulatory oversight fees. They've got so many names 
that anything you ask them, they'll give you some very low amount because that is the case. So what we're looking for is, as fiduciaries, we're looking to see how do we keep the costs as low as possible? Because if you think as the of the financial plan as a sailboat on the waters, what you want to do is optimize the tailwinds and minimize the headwinds. That's how you move the furthest. Now, most people who have a brain understand that nobody can control the winds. Mm-hmm. Nobody can predict the winds. But what we can do is position the boat in such a way that when a gust of wind comes, we move as far as we possibly can because we optimize the tailwinds, which means incorporated elements into the portfolio that are most likely to benefit from a particular move in the market in a diversified way. And we've minimized the headwinds, which are costs and income taxes. That is the story. And so we're in the sailboat construction business, really. I love that. And I love that analogy. I grew up in Puerto Rico, so sailing was one of our <laughs> pastimes. Um, so I love the, the way you explain that. And you will appreciate the story, although it's kind of a sad story. It's a, st- a story of my own failure. When I was 21 years old and I received my first signing bonus at a big investment bank, I said, well, now what am I supposed to do with $22,000, right? So I knew enough that I shouldn't be spending that money and that I should invest it. The only problem is I didn't know what questions to ask. So I went and I went to somebody that somebody recommended and we had this very quick conversation and they said, well, you're 21, you need to be invested in a growth mutual fund. You have a, and that sounded pretty accurate to me. He was, you know, on some level, he was right, right? Like I have time is uh, on my side here. So growth sounded great. The only thing is I didn't realize how loaded these funds were of these fees. And only over a decade later that I start looking at this money and saying, I don't understand. This was growth. This was supposed to be growing. The stock market has done really well after 2008. How come I don't have that much money? (laughs) And that's only when I realized how much money I was paying in fees. Correct. That's exactly right. Most people have no idea. Because, you know, I made up a biblical saying, which doesn't exist in the Bible, but it's in my mental Bible, <laughs> which says which says, what the big print giveth, the small print taketh away. Mm. And, um, you know, because the, the brokerage community is completely compliant, everything they need to tell you is told to you. You know, on page 46 at the bottom in micro print, that's the problem. So at the end of the day, of course they're compliant. They're making all of the disclosures. They're doing everything in accordance with the law. But, you know, we observe a higher standard than the law. There's a Jewish concept called lifnim mm-hmm. hadim. You go above and beyond because the sacred task of a Jew is to be or aspire to be holy. Yes. And there's a whole section on it. So what does it mean? And it certainly doesn't mean, you know, cover yourself legally by providing all of these quote-unquote disclosures right. and then have a clear conflict. And, you know, in the old days they used to call it the pump and dump system. Because the bank office creates the products and pumps them into the hands of the salesman who then dumps them into the portfolios of unsuspecting investors. That whole pump and dump thing is filled with conflict, filled with self-interest, but covered with, you know, full disclosures and small print. We're not in that world. I like to be in a world where there's no small print at all. Yeah, I remember that classic joke of, uh, you know, you look in, 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 in New York, you look at everybody's, all the Wall Street brokers' yachts, and the question is, where are the clients' yachts? <laughs> that's <laughs> right. Aren't here. <laughs> that's, a, that's a classic right? book. Classic book, by the way, where are the clients' yachts? 
Oh, it's a, it's a book. I didn't even know classic, that. Classic book. I bought it used, you know, dog-eared. Uh, it's still around on the second hand. I, I'd read about the book so much, I actually bought it. Uh, I have it. Uh, fascinating. And it was about this guy who just realized that all the brokers had yachts right. and uh, and the clients didn't. And then they figured out, you know, Warren Buffett says it. It's the private Wall Street's the process where money is transferred from the hands of the impatient to the hands of the patient. And uh, so being patient, having good long-term strategies and not resulting in, you know, frenetic churning and trading and great new ideas every day. You know, we very seldom come up with great new ideas, really. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people say, well, what do you have that's new and exciting? And our answer is, we've got nothing that's new and exciting. The old is pretty exciting if you can only observe it. And then I quote uh, from one of my heroes, uh, Paul Samuelson, an economic uh, Nobel Prize winner, who says, great investing ought to be like watching paint dry or grass grow. <sighs> I love that. And then he goes on and says, if you want excitement, Put some money on the tables in Las Vegas. Exactly. And, uh, but we're not we're not there to provide new and exciting. Absolutely not. So so then the question in people's minds right now is probably okay. So how does my fiduciary then make money if he's not taking a cut from the investments they're advising? Um, is it are are fiduciaries traditionally making money as a flat fee, or is there always going to be a percentage of money invested? How does how do the finances work here? Well, having ruled out any kickbacks or commissions, the only way that a fiduciary gets paid is directly from the client in a disclosed manner. Mm-hmm. There are two ways. One is a fixed fee, uh, which is paid annually or quarterly. And the other one is a percentage of assets under management, which is the model we use. It incentivizes us to optimize the assets because we get to share in the growth. Uh, because we, you know, as the pie gets bigger, our, obviously our percentage you know, in real dollars grows. So we're with the clients, we're incentivized to be on their side of the table. Mm-hmm. We have no other side of the desk and they know exactly what they're paying. And because we're on their side of the desk and not on the other side of the desk from them, but we're encouraged also, not only because of our integrity and our uh, obligation as fiduciaries, but also it's in our self-interest to help the pie grow as much as possible because that's what we're managing and getting our fees based on, but always with full disclosure. So then the, 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 it's obvious from this conversation that one of the most important questions a person should be asking when they're interviewing prospective wealth managers or financial advisors is, how are you going to make your money, right? How, how are you making money here? I think that's a straightforward question that we should be asking. What are other questions that people should be asking as they're looking to establish this relationship? How do you view your role in the life of your clients? Mm. And what, which is very important, what do they see themselves as? Um, and if they're simply managing money, then I don't think they're doing their whole job, frankly. Uh, I think money is, has to be contextualized. And I think you don't just, quote, unquote, manage money. It's got to be within the context of the person. It has to really translate the fears, the hopes, the dreams, uh, the aspirations of the client into a portfolio that reflects all of that. Now, you can't invest other people's money using, you know, your fear, greed, you know, Mm -hmm. index uh, to decide or your ability to handle volatility versus theirs and so on. I think that is absolutely critical. And the second thing is what is the basis on which you make your decisions? Are you somebody who relies on your own research? Are you relying on what's called evidence-based investing, the kind of the what they call now the science of capital markets? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you pick? Do you market time? Do you decide what to buy, when to buy? 
uh, which, by the way, you should know has almost no validity in real. You know, it's really great in theory because, of course, if you could pick the right stocks and if you could pick the right Tesla or the right Microsoft, you know, when it's just starting out, uh, you know, then, uh, of course, that would be fantastic. But, um, you know, um, you know, so, so, but that, of course, is silly because the chance of that happening is so infinitesimally small that all the statistics show that very, very few people get that right. Uh, those people who believe in market timing have to make two perfect decisions, one when to get out and mm-hmm. one number two when to get back in. And even if you get one right, if you get the other wrong, you're in trouble. Right. Uh, as, you, as you may know from people who sold out in 2008, I have a friend who did, um, and uh, he's, you know, he's never going to make back the multiple that he lost by being out. Um, and because of the way the market works, and we've seen it over the last few months, um, contrary to many expectations, the market basically recovered about half of its bear market decline over the last several months, unexpected by most. Um, so, you, you know, are you in the stock picking business? Are you in the market timing business? In that case, get them out of your life. Are there true fiduciaries? No, get them out of your life. And then you move to what really works, which is long-term diversified equity investing. Mm-hmm. Broadly diversified in a low-cost and tax-efficient manner. And here's the key. This is the science. This is the evidence-based stuff which says that is great. To be well-diversified is wonderful, but there's one step beyond that. Now, you can overweight or tilt towards factors that have historically outperformed. That's the science. That's what Eugene Fummer got the Nobel Prize for. Um, and I just must digress for one minute. Yeah. Uh, and he came to us a few weeks ago. And he said, you know, I'm currently with a wealth manager who has a unique algorithm for picking stocks and picking timing and stuff. He said, do you have any kind of unique stuff like that? And I said, absolutely not. That we have absolutely nothing unique to offer because all of the good stuff is already out there. Our job is not to figure out what's unique. Our job is to sit on the shoulders of giants. And in so doing, we can be pygmies and be the tallest guys in the room. So we're humble people who have really one great strength which is to figure out where the wisdom is and to attach ourselves to that wisdom. And there are probably a dozen or 15 people who really get it. And all the rest are a bunch of either disciples of theirs, of which we are, or else they're on the other side of the story altogether in the, you know, the Wall Street machine. And you know already what we think of that. So, yeah, there are people, you know, and the, these are the people on whose shoulders we sit. They're all, you know, smart people, they, they approach it from a data-driven point and so on. And so just to give you a sense of the summary of what the science of capital markets really says, and again, so you've got this broadly diversified approach to investing, particularly equities, mm-hmm. and then overweighting to attributes that have historically indicated higher expected returns. Mm-hmm. And that's really where the science comes in. In other words, what the research shows, and it's decades of academic research, that um, over time, companies that exhibit certain characteristics in large groups tend to outperform. And I'll give you just a couple of them. Companies that have large and growing profitability. Right. So profitability attribute. And they, by the way, they're all things that you would intuitively figure out. There's nothing here that's not intuitive. So if you could pick a group of companies that has a large profitability aspect, that they sell products or services that give them a high margin, and a growing margin tend to do better than companies that don't. Not all, but as a group, think actuarially as a large group. Uh, also, smaller companies 
tend to do better than larger companies over time. That also makes sense if you think about it. You know, for a small company to double in size is a lot easier than a large company. Just for example, there's a beverage company called Monster Beverage. You may have heard of it, energy drinks and stuff. For, for Monster Beverage to double in size is far more feasible, far more imaginable than for Coca-Cola to double in size. Right. That's for Coca-Cola to double in size, they'd have to basically, you know, colonize Mars and convince the Martians to drink Coke because everybody else in the world's already drinking it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, so, so, so this idea of smaller companies, they also tend to be more entrepreneurial, to try to be more innovative. Uh, larger companies tend to be more institutionalized and so on. But the truth is, it doesn't really matter why. All that we're concerned about is what. Mm-hmm. What is the evidence? The evidence shows that smaller companies do better than large companies. Another attribute, value companies tend to do better than growth companies over time. That doesn't mean all value companies, but over time, value companies, and that would make sense because if you buy a value-based company, in other words, a company where mediocrity is expected and therefore they're priced for mediocrity, you might be paying $12 or $14 for every dollar of annual earnings mm-hmm. as opposed to a growth company where you might be paying $100 for every dollar of earnings because that $100 for every dollar of earnings is priced for perfection. And we know in the real world, perfection is more elusive than mediocrity. That's simply the way the world works. And so that's not to say only by value. It's not to say only by small companies. And I could give you other factors as well. But it means be sure that you have slight overweightings to those factors because over time they tend to do better than the others. And there are other factors as well. Uh, but I don't want to give you a whole lecture on that. By the way, just, just so you know, free for anybody who's viewing this, um, if you would like a copy of the book that my son and I wrote called The Wealth Blueprint, um, if you just email, if they just email you, um, you'll be able to send out to them uh, a, an ebook with with our compliments and with your compliments. Lays out all of the scientific basis, all of the evidence, all of the research, all of the data but in a non-textbook manner. My son and I did not set out to write an investment textbook. Uh, but something that would be accessible, understandable, um, and uh, and makes the points there convincingly and simply. Um, by the way, on that, forgive me, I've just got to, got to emphasize one, one more thing. Yeah. Money is not complicated. Right. Everything, and I tell people, if you don't understand everything, give your financial advisor one more chance and if you still don't understand fire them and find somebody else because nothing that I do I can tell you is complicated and I'm sure already from what you hear you understand it's radically simplified the problem is that complications work very well for people who have an incentive to complicate so you don't really know what the hell's going on right right so and and this is this is a perfect wrap up to that question about what should we be looking for right so if this financial advisor is talking over your head constantly then something is off in this relationship because it should, it should not be complicated it should be pretty straightforward um and it also segues us into my next question which is one of the the timing, perhaps. Um, I think sometimes the timing of when to introduce 
a financial advisor to our team of, you know, advisors in our lives kind of confuses people. At what point, Selwyn, do, do we explore working with one? If I'm just, you know, starting out or I'm just keeping up with my expenses and perhaps I'm saving and investing a little bit, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm in a growth stage in my life. Maybe people think, well, it's not for me. I guess the question is, at what point do I need that outside help, especially in the context of today's world after 2008, when we do have so many online platforms where we can DIY it, sort of speak and see, you know, so what what do you recommend? How do, how do you recommend people look at this? Well, first of all, you know, what you start doing early is tremendously impactful in how you end up. Even small amounts of savings early on in life make a massive difference to your retirement situation. There are many illustrations of that, but starting early is critical. Secondly, um, many of the financial issues ought to be decided early. For example, when you work and you've got a 401k or an IRA, that allocation, uh, you know, is, is, a, is a decision you should make with, with knowledge. And whether you do that on your own or you do that with the help of an advisor, you should know what you're choosing in your 401k and why. Mm-hmm. You should have a time frame. You should have a risk tolerance. You should understand what you've invested in. Um, so I think it's early. Certainly when people get into marriage, for example, kids come along, uh, you know, and I, I, we have young couples who come and see us. And, you know, just the same as the hospital won't let you out of the birthing ward without a car seat in your car. I'm sure you have that where you live as well. Certainly in California, if you want to leave one of the hospitals with a baby, they will not let you take the baby out unless you have right. a car seat. When we meet with a young couple who doesn't have a will, we do not let them, do, if they have a child, we do not let them out of the office without an appointment with a lawyer, either theirs or one we suggest. Mm-hmm. It's an act of ultimate irresponsibility for young people not to have a will and an estate plan and Life insurance. Life insurance. Uh, right. we, in our community, in our synagogue community, at least every four or five years, we have a complete community catastrophe. where some young person has died with a young family, inadequate assets. We're going around figuring out who's going to pay the rent. Uh, so I tell people it's an act of irresponsibility right. to plan or have a family if you don't either have wealth or insurance. Yeah. So it's never too early to start. And I must just tell you one more thing, which you'll find quite amusing and cute. And when I do speak publicly uh, in person and I get to the estate planning part, I just ask a kind of a question which is meant to elicit a particular response. I say, well, how many of you have a will? And then like you know, half the people put up their hands. And I say, let me tell you, I have to correct you. Every one of you has a will. The only difference is some of you decided to make your own will and some of you decided to take the free one that the state you live in has prepared for you. And Correct. What an abdication, abdication of responsibility and obligation uh, to your family and the people you love to not have a will or trust in the state plan. Imagine families fighting on the steps of the court about who's going to get the child, who's going to get the money, who's going to be the trustee, and all that stuff. It's, you know, in, in California, we have something called a living trust. Right. Uh, it's around the world, and we call it a loving trust. It's an act of love for the mm-hmm. people you care about to leave things in good order because there's enough other stuff to deal with. Agreed. Other issues. So anyway, so I just wanted to mention that for people who don't have a will who are watching, uh, you should understand that you have a will. You've just chosen the one that was prepared for you by your state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I actually just 
earlier this summer, we sat down and we went back to our lawyer's office and we revised our wheel because we hadn't looked at it in four years. And we said, you know what, it's time to relook at it. And we made a few changes and that was it. But it was, again, a great opportunity to just make sure that this document really reflects what we want as a family, which is also what we're doing as we're planning for our money, right? It's we're deciding what we, as you said it before, money is sacred. Money is a resource that we don't take lightly. It's here for us to be productive members of society to create impact. There's so much good we do with it. So we have to take it with intentionality. And that's really why we are trying to engage with it in the mo- the healthiest, most positive way and in this relationship. Um, and I think what you suggested before is that there we should start earlier, early, but people shouldn't be discouraged, correct me if I'm wrong, if they haven't reached a certain capacity of wealth by not seeking the help of an outside professional. Um, is that right? Like, like, again, I go back to this issue of timing because I think people really struggle with this, this perception that a financial advisor is for the ultra wealthy. And if I'm not there yet, well, I don't have, I can't ask, I can't go. How do we, how do we grapple with that? Well, first of all, many advisors will start uh, with a smaller minimum. We do, by the way. Mm-hmm. We're very happy. Uh, we regard that as kind of mitzvah time, giving back time. We're happy to help young couples uh, because we don't want to be in a position where we're being asked to support them uh, down the road in the cases that I told you. So we're happy to do that. But by the way, some of it is not so complicated. A lot of it can be done online. If you are tech savvy, there are, you know, and many of them are actually quite good, the websites, particularly for starting off couples. Um, mm-hmm. You know, once again, though, you've got to be careful who you're dealing with. Many of the life insurance brokers will sell policies that are designed to generate large commissions. Mm-hmm. And just, just while I'm, I'm on that, let me just give me my other beef. Many young couples are walking around buying permanent insurance, huge amounts of premiums for relatively small amounts of insurance. And most of the first year or two's premiums typically end up in the pocket of your insurer, the broker. Right. Um, and so, by the way, I have a feeling that the reason they're called brokers is because you get broker and broker as they get richer and richer. <laughs> <laughs> Don't quote me on that one. Um, but um, Not only that, Selwyn, they are sold into these products as though this is an investment vehicle. And I always I always tell my students, no, 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 like they're separate things. You just want insurance for your life. You don't need this to serve as your wealth creation vehicle. Correct. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so, you know, I, I would just say as a rule of thumb, most young people are better off with a 20-year level premium term insurance, which costs really very little. You don't have any, quote, unquote, equity. But I remind people, you also don't have any equity in your automobile insurance or your homeowner's insurance you know, or your health insurance. You are buying insurance. You are taking a bet with an insurance company, which you hope you lose. Right? What is life insurance? Every year you take a bet with the insurance company. And if you lose, you live and you've lost your premium. Mm -hmm. And if you win, you get the huge amount that's insured, but of course you lost your life. But it's a a bet. And you want to lose the bet with all of your insurance. People Mm -hmm. don't think about it. So they're looking for equity. I tell them you don't get equity in any real insurance. What you get is cover. You Mm -hmm. get that's what you get is insurance cover. But of course, the insurance industry. Is very skillfully, as you pointed out correctly, combine two things so that they are blurred and you can't really evaluate either. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just to just so that your listeners, viewers can can understand this clearly, a twenty-year level premium term 
means that every year the insurance company has to renew your life insurance as if you were in the same health as you were when you took out your policy at the beginning. You've got 20 years at that same coverage in the same condition. And by the way, most of those insurance policies give you the right to convert to permanent insurance if you choose to do so. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you do that, most of them allow you to buy the insurance as if you were in the same condition of health as you were when you started. And so if we can just play morbid for a moment, a young couple gets married, they have a baby, they decide to buy life insurance on the husband's life, 20-year level premium in year 18, the husband is diagnosed with terminal illness. At that point, they have the perfect right to convert that into a whole life permanent policy at the health condition that he was at the beginning of the policy. So you have a kind of an option to convert if you need to. You know, of course, if you're well, you can keep shopping at year 18 or 19 and replace it with new insurance, but that is an option. So I just wanted to mention that because we're on a kind of a campaign to Mm -hmm. make sure that young couples are properly protected with respect to estate planning and life insurance. Yeah, no, it's it's so super important. It's so super important. Now back to you mentioned the online platforms, I also alluded to it. So back to that point, um, in your estimation, um, there is there is room for somebody to DIY using one of these platforms, at least at the very beginning of their financial life. I know that I'm a fan of some of them, like I'm a big fan of Betterment. Um, I find Vanguard to be very solid. I do my kids investments, you know, um, through Vanguard. Um, I, f- I found it beneficial for me, but I want to know what your take is on this. Right. Um, well, it, totally with you. Totally with you. People, you know, you can do DIYs for all kinds of things. There mm-hmm. are people who DIY their houses. I happen to be not particularly handy. The greatest <laughs> contribution I can make is to do nothing. Because uh, when I put any, you know, when I buy these pieces, that you know, these anything that you have to assemble, and at the end of it, I usually have a few parts left over. So I, I assume I that manufacturers I didn't put too many parts in. So my contribution is to not DIY any of that stuff. But there are people who do DIY all kinds of things, and I have no problem at all with that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. My problems with people who either are in the hands of charlatans or who do nothing. Those are the people um, I really worry about the most. Uh, mm-hmm. All of these platforms are re- reasonably good. They're certainly good enough. Uh, even with wills and trusts, by the way, you don't have to have a lawyer. You can get a darn good will prepared online by one of these, um, you know, and I'm, I'm not advocating it. I'm, I'm just stating that having no will is an act of irresponsibility. Right. And and the other thing which I would remind everybody is that a will is a flexible document, as you just said yourself. You know, you don't have to have a perfect solution to do the will. If you right. want your kids to be, you have know, as their custodian, uh, cousin Joe and his wife, and then, you know, six months later, you see them with their kids and say, you know, doesn't feel right. They're not, you know, you can change it to Cousin Susie. Um, so I, I say any will is better than no will. hundred yeah. And I tell that, don't wait for perfection. Right. Wait for, wait for good enough. Yes. Done. And Which also always- brings us to investing, right? Because a lot of people, especially women, tend to wait and until we understand it and we get the whole thing. I'm not saying don't get educated, but sometimes it really plays... Um, to our disadvantage because then we're just underinvested. Correct. Well, you know, that, that leads me to one of my other pet peeves, which is uh, I want all of your viewers to know that money is genderless. 
Thank society you. has created a, an aura, an image of money as being in the male domain. And I want you to know that I am vociferously, actively opposed to that. Nothing could be further from the truth. Right. By the way, I just got to say this in, in, to advance my position. Women actually make better investors than men overall. All the statistics show that. Right. Yeah. Because they don't check their statements as often. They tend to be much more in the what, passive mode, which I advocate very much. And the problem is if you look at your statements very regularly, you're likely to react to them. Mm-hmm. And the reaction is likely, likely to be exactly the wrong direction. Right. You see, we're all descended from animals. And if you go into the wild, which is, you know, I come from South Africa, I've been on <laughs> safari many times. If you look in the wild at animals, you will see that when they are very comfortable, when they feel safe, they herd, they hang out together. And when they sense danger, they flee. Mm. That's what most people do. They look at their brokerage statements and they see they're doing really well and they're tempted to put more money in. And then when the market's going really badly, they're tempted to take out money. That's why most people put most money in at the top of the market and pull it out at the bottom, which is, of course, exactly the opposite of what you you want to do. So, you know, they're figuring out why Warren Buffett's rich and they're still struggling with their media savings. And that's because they do exactly the opposite of what they should be doing because we are genetically programmed to be bad investors. Mm. That's the problem right there. So when people say to me, you know, we're so happy with our returns, you know what I tell them? Please don't be too happy mm. because any emotion is likely to, do, to make you do precisely the wrong thing. What do most people do when they're happy? They do more of it. That's right. not what you want to do. When you're unhappy, you want to stop doing it. In fact, so that is the problem with emotional investing. It always leads you astray. Yeah, which brings us really to today's climate. So I've been hearing from so many people in my private Facebook group that unfortunately, they took money out of the market because, well, I kept seeing that I was losing money every day. And I'm saying, no, you really are not losing money until you actually sell that thing. But okay, Um and yet people still do it. Like, we are really not rational beings. Correct. Absolutely correct. We aren't. That's why the challenge is to master your instincts and suppress them. I will just give you a quote on that from one of my heroes, one of the people on whose shoulders we sit, Charlie Munger, mm-hmm. who's Warren Buffett's right-hand man and a brilliant strategist. Uh, and he's, he's got this incredible idea that he says the ideal mindset for an equity investor is equanimity. Ah. That, that, by the way, is a very powerful word. What it really means, it's an Oriental concept. It's an Eastern religious concept. Equanimity is the art of feeling absolutely nothing, no reaction. You know, the, 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 there are many Eastern religions that focus on allowing you to observe and not react. Mm-hmm. Western culture forces us to observe and then arrive at conclusions. Right. So most of us have opinions on absolutely everything. <laughs> we do. We walk around seeing things and then coming to conclusions and having opinions on everything. There is another mindset, actually, which is to observe and have no opinion. Right. So I can look at the back, you know, behind you and see what's there, and I can start looking at the books you have and maybe try to read what's on the uh, covers and, and look at your pictures and start coming to conclusions. Or I can, have a whole, I can just look at it. 
I can absorb it and have absolutely no conclusion, have no opinion whatsoever. That's a very powerful mindset mm-hmm. and it is absolutely ideal for an investor because if you don't have conclusions and you're not, you know, constantly analyzing to arrive at the end of the thought process and you ignore it completely with this mindset called equanimity, you can really let the market do what it does well, which is just over long periods of time, quality equities do really well as mm-hmm. long as you leave them alone. And I must tell you my own personal anecdote on this one. Yeah. As you know, 1977, the Dow Jones was 850. Mm-hmm. 850. Can you easily check what it is now? By the way, it's got to be multiple times. I don't Mul- know what the multiple times. Yeah. Keep with I your think- story. I'm checking. I'm turning on the phone. I'm okay, checking. great. So, so we'll <laughs> see what the Dow Jones is now. And so, and but you know what you had to do in order to earn that spectacular return? Honestly, what you had to do was absolutely nothing. Nothing. That's that's the problem. But most people find doing nothing to be impossible. But right. the, the real issue is doing nothing is a big challenge. It's a much bigger challenge than reacting to your impulses. Huh. And so that's where we are doing nothing. So you know, long term equity investing is about ignoring short term movements and understanding that in the long run. It, it moves upwards. In fact, I tell people the mental image that I like people to embrace when we construct equity portfolios is to imagine a person walking up the stairs with a yo-yo in their hand. Mm-hmm. Your job is to watch the feet and not the yo-yo. Uh-huh. It's a tough job. But if you get it, you get it. I'll mm-hmm. tell you Warren Buffett has a slightly different take on that. He says when you go to a sports game, there are two kinds of people watching the game. There are those who watch what's going on on the sports field. Yeah. There are those going on on the scoreboard. Mm. Smart investors are focused on the playing field. Right. Scoreboard will take care of itself. Do you happen to have the Dow Jones value right now? Yes. 34,208. Boom. There you go. Okay. (laughs) That's about 36 times the start, right? And by the way, that does not include the invested dividends that could have been reinvested along the way. Exactly. You take $850 and you make it into what would probably be close to $40,000 when you add the dividends together. Who needs more? Who wants more? Who deserves more? And all you had to do was control your impulses. That's it. Because a lot of bad stuff happened along the way. And there were many opportunities to throw in the towel. And most people did. That's the problem. Anyway, so that's that's the story on that. I will just uh, tell you one more thing from Buffett that I think is... Did you want to say something? Or no, no, no. Tell me another yeah. story. Continue. I, I just, I've got to tell you one of the formative quotes from Buffett. Yeah. Uh, once again, one of our uh, one of our shoulders that we sit on. And by the way, we are great fans of Warren Buffett. We've been to the Berkshire Hathaway um, Woodstock for Capitalists shareholders meeting in Omaha many, many times. Um, and he's, he's truly uh, not only a great businessman, but he thinks clearly. So you don't only get his actions, but more importantly, his rationale. And I will tell anybody who wants to study investing, read the Warren Buffett uh, annual report for the last four or five years. You will see so many great qualities about how he thinks, how he makes decisions, how he ignores things that he doesn't have expertise in or understanding in. He's perfectly happy to say no. And by the way, on that, he says successful people say no to almost everything. Most of us have to believe in that. But here's the quote that changed my life when I first read it many years ago. Um, 
what he said was when you're investing in quality equities, and this is almost verbatim, yeah. when you're investing in a diverse group of quality equities, it is as if you're in partnership with a mythical fellow called Mr. Market, who knocks on your door every day and makes an offer to buy you out of your share of the business that you have in partnership with him. And he says the problem with this fellow is he's prone to severe mood swings, maybe some kind of a mental disorder. So he goes through periods when he's happy, optimistic, effusive. We call that a bull market. Mm-hmm. And in those times, he's going to offer you an outrageously high price for your share of the commonly owned business. Then he goes through periods of being down, forlorn, depressed. We call that a bear market. Oh, my, my. During those times, he's going to offer you a fraction of what the true price ought to be of what you own. And here comes the Buffett wisdom. He says, your job as an investor is to ignore the mood swings of your partner, Mr. M- Mr. Market, because in the short run, his offerings are the price of what you own. But in the long run, the true value of what you own is determined by the profits earned in the companies you own. Mm-hmm. And so if you think back to that sports field idea, what he says is ignore the offerings on a daily basis of your partner right. because that is the price. The value, the true value is determined by the profits earned. And so what you've got to be focused on is owning companies that are making growing profits Mm-hmm. with strong balance sheets in businesses that can endure, that have protective moats. He's got his rules, and that's what we do, not complicated. So we're talking here about a lot of what we've just mentioned really um, alludes to the idea of having a long-term plan and staying in the game for the long-term, long-term goals, right? Let's talk about goals for a minute because um, – you know, you sit with people, you've done this for many years, right? And defining goals, obviously, is a critical step to, you know, to getting somewhere, right? So, but I think um, it's somewhat of a challenge for many people getting really clear and specific and really individualizing those goals. Um, What advice can you give us here? How do we actually define our financial goals? Look, first of all, the younger you are, the more vague they are. Obviously, you know, you want to retire in comfort and, you know, what are you going to do at 25 or 30 years old? You know, you're working as hard as you can, focused on your career, focused on paying the bills, and, you know, you can't really focus. As you get older, you move more towards seeing retirement as a real end goal. And at that point, we suggest that retirement planning be done be done in a reverse mode. Mm-hmm. In other words, that you start with an end result. What does retirement look like? And you back into, you know, the current situation. So most people kind of plan their retirement from where they are to the end. We think mm-hmm. that's the wrong direction. We think the way to, to plan retirement is to start with the end and say, what does retirement look like? How old do we want to be? Where do we want to live? What is it going to cost? And then with that in mind, it's like, you know, what do we need in, at that point in order to fund that lifestyle? Mm-hmm. And now we go backwards and say, what do we need to do now? So that that outcome, five or 10 or 15 years from now, is an inevitable outcome of the planning and actions we do between now and then. Mm-hmm. I think most people don't do planning in the right direction for retirement. It's not something you need to do very young, but I think as you approach retirement age, and I, I would generally recommend 15 years or so before planned retirement, that you get much more actively into 
retirement planning as opposed to simply having goals of mm-hmm. wealth accumulation and saving, which of course are always admirable. But when you concretize them and we say, you know, roughly you know, a reasonable amount of time before, when you can start doing the backwards planning, you already know what retirement's going to look like, where you'd like to live, what you'd like to live in. Uh, are you going to downsize? Are you going to move to a different part? What does that look like? And once you can begin to concretize retirement, you can then work backwards to the present and say, okay, what do we need to do now to make that retirement the logical outcome of everything we do between now and then? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. But I'm thinking as a listener is, is, is listening to us um, and going back to this point that we made earlier that we are emotional, we're not rational, right? For so many of us, it's so hard to think about retirement. And then especially we come up with against more pressing goals in terms of timing, right? Some people might be pressured that then in five years, they have a wedding to finance, right? There's there's all these medium-term goals. And sometimes we forget that retirement is a real thing that we need to be investing. So again, it's hard for people, you probably see this all day long, to stay focused on, you know, on these goals that bump up against each other. Very good. Um, a very good observation and sharing a very widely held concern. We generally view that by creating buckets. Mm. Once you create buckets uh, for various needs, you now have everything more concretized. You can then look at your financial life and say, okay, we've got uh, two children who are planning to get married. We're expecting to pay X or Y or Z for that. And we probably four or five years later, we'll have to help them with the house right. uh, to a certain extent within a budget that. And so the things you know, you know, are, are basically planned for in your buckets. And then, you know, many people do very well with multiple accounts. So you don't just have intellectual buckets, but you have financial buckets. And by the way, those buckets also are invested in such a way that they, that the time frame of the investments, the nature of the investments coincides with the time frame of the likely disbursement. So for example, if you have a wedding to plan for in two years time, that money should not be invested in equities. Mm-hmm. Because the problem with equities is although they do really well in the long run, they can do really badly in the short run. And you set aside X for your wedding, the market goes down precipitously, and you have half of X, right. you can't have half a wedding. Right. And so what we need to do is create buckets, and then each bucket has an investment program that matches the time frame. So your 15 or 20-year long-term portfolio can have a heavy equity allocation because over the long periods of time, equities do really well. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, when you have short and intermediate, you'd have to have a different construction. So there's no one size fits all for investing. Every yeah. bucket has to be tailored to the specific time frame and risk tolerance of the situation. Before we go on with this amazing interview, let me introduce you to a podcast that I think you might enjoy. Hi, and welcome to Be Impactful, a show about the women making an impact in their own corner of the world. I'm Rifki Itzkowitz, and I'll be your host. The name Be Impactful comes from a hashtag that I created for my brand Impact Fashion when I first bought it onto Instagram in about... 
I want to say like sometime in late 2016. I had no idea what I was doing when it came to social media marketing or really any marketing, to be perfectly honest. And I had read somewhere that it would be a good idea to have a brand specific hashtag. So I took 10 minutes out of my day. I came up with Be Impactful. I liked it. I capitalized the I because why not? And then boom, I had this hashtag. And everyone told me how brilliant it was. Everyone was saying things like, that's so smart. How'd you think of that? You're such a genius. Wow, you're so good at this marketing thing. And it was totally improvised. And I think that's something that's a lot more common than we think. I think that a lot of the people that we see day to day that make us feel self-conscious about where we are in our lives because of how well they're doing in theirs are actually improvising just as much, if not more, as we are. And that's what I want to learn more about. I want to learn more about what's actually going on in people's lives, the things that they actually needed to do to get to where they are today. I want to know about the women around me and what's going on in their heads, because if we can all be a little more open about what it took to get to where we are today, then we can all lift each other up. So that's what you're going to hear. You're going to hear from my friends that I've met across all business sectors. You're going to hear from people who I'll be meeting them together with you. You'll hear from business owners. You'll hear from creatives. You'll hear from artists. You'll hear from activists. You'll hear from people who run nonprofits, women of all types and stripes who are just doing their best to do their best. They're doing their best to make an impact on the world. So please take a minute to subscribe and together we can learn what it means to be impactful. You've been married for a very long time, and I'm sure you've experienced many couples in your office. Um, what are some things that you can tell us in terms of advice to married married couples? As you probably have seen, uh, marriage and money sometimes can be a really explosive combination, and we don't want it to be that, especially when we're coming at it from a Jewish lens. Um, again, we we understand that m- marriage is you know, the epicenter of Jewish life and money is one of the most wonderful tools that we've been given. So we really want those to be in harmony. Yet we see that very often there is no harmony there. What can you tell us? So here's the thing. Look, first of all, the rule of marriage is open. The more open you are, the less secrets you have, the better it is. Frankly, you know, I'm a great advocate of premarital counseling Mm -hmm. because I think these things are best discussed before you get married. So that the issues that money presents are pre-resolved, for example. And I'll just give you one we're dealing with right now. We have a a couple where uh, they've done quite well financially, but the wife feels obligated to support her parents. Mm. The husband says, I had no idea when I was getting married that I was going to be carrying, you know, the wife's family, her brother needs, her parents are in difficulty. I work, you know, very hard. And I work for my family, and I do not regard it as my responsibility to take care of my wife's parents. That's something that should have been dealt with way, way long time before. Is who takes care of the parents? Am I expected to? 
And all of those issues that keep coming up, uh, you know, all of the major money issues should be discussed right up front. Um, you know, how important is money? How do you view uh, philanthropy? Got to have shared values on that as well. Um, how do you view spending? Mm-hmm. You know, do you view, uh, do you want to be conservative in our spending so that we can optimize our retirement? Or do you want to live fully when we're younger and not worry about old age because we'll be too old to enjoy it? I mean, they both, you know, many of these are differing, competing points of view. There's no right or wrong, but you've got to share the values. You can't have one person who says, listen, you know, we're only going down this path once. I want to smell the roses. I want to tour. I want to travel. I want to live like a mensch. I don't want to live like a schnorrer. You know, and that's fine. The other person says, listen, you know, I grew up with nothing. I'm happy to live at the lower end because I really want to make sure that our retirement is more comfortable. Mm. You know, and so there are many, and the same with my earlier example. There's some people who say, listen, you know, the money is ours. And if your family needs, they can tap into it because it's ours. It doesn't matter who earned it. But on the other hand, if the husband says, listen, I work, you know, very hard for this and I'm not willing to keep your parents in a beautiful condo in Florida on my uh, account when, you know, I myself am thinking twice about spending and so on. So they're very, very difficult issues. And mm-hmm. the sooner you deal with them, and I mean premarital counseling is probably ideal. Mm-hmm. Anything after that is probably late. Um, but otherwise therapy, you know, speak to somebody, but they are big issues and they do destroy families and create a lot of angst. Money is the source of great angst, as you know, which is why I was invited to speak. And anything you can do to ease that by, first of all, shared values, yeah. or, at least, or at least accommodating each other's values respectfully and saying, look, you know, we can agree to disagree, which, by the way, is a uniquely Jewish way to resolve difference. Mm-hmm. You know, secular society says, I'm right and you're wrong. And whatever it takes, I'm going to prove that. Secular society, a Jewish society says, no, you know, these and those, Elu Elu, you know that. So, and in fact, our entire book of, of books of, of, of Jewish wisdom, the Talmud, the Gemara, are all about people who agree to disagree. Right. So we don't have to see things the same. We just have to respect the other's point of view yeah. and understand that it's sincerely held and represents who they are. And, and then embrace that in some way. But it does create a huge number of problems. Huge. Yeah. And I think the key word that you just said is the understanding. The, the part of the problem is because we don't talk about it, we don't communicate, and then we, can, we can't understand the other person. There's no empathy built. Um, so these are conversations. You suggest a premarital counsel, a hundred percent, but I... I I would say that people need to be continuously throughout their marriage engaged in this financial conversation and this values conversation and this goals conversation. It's not something that you just set it and go, you know, just like, again, you revisit your will, you revisit these things constantly. It's part of building a life together. Absolutely. And I was not uh, trying to in any way indicate that it's not an ongoing process. But the problem is by the time it emerges, you've often never really discussed it. Because by the time you're, Parents-in-law in Florida, you know, right. come up with the fact that they've run out of money now and they need you to pick up the tab for their living. Uh, it's not something that you may have dealt with previously. Right. Many people aren't even aware of the situation. So right. never came up. Yeah. So when you started your career um, early on, you studied economics in South Africa. You've obviously been interested in money since a very young age. What was your upbringing like in this area? What were some of the lessons about money that you learned growing up in childhood, either explicitly or implicitly or, you know, served you or perhaps didn't serve you? Well, um, 
My own story is not, not a particularly fortunate one, although in some ways it was. Um, my father died when I was 14. Wow. And left my widowed mother with uh, three other kids younger than me, three sisters. So I grew up in a, in a tough upbringing in many ways and not much money. I can tell mm-hmm. you, not much money. Um, and um, my grandfather had, had some money, um, which he shared with us generously. And he had a small factory and I, his wife had died around, around the same time as my father did. So, and he was my mother's father. So he moved into our house and I became extremely close with him. Mm. And I was, I was his kind of like, even as a teenager, his kind of chief advisor on his uh, small factory that he had and on his uh, investment properties that he had. Uh, and so I, I had a very early, uh, you know, indulgence in, money matters, um, also because his friends would hang out at the house um, and they were much older than me, obviously, but I was fascinated, fascinated by what, by what they were talking about, which was all the big things, you know, money, politics, <laughs> Israel, Zionism, religion, you know, and um, so I had, you know, I had a very early dip. Look, I have to make a joke, so and I have to pass you. It reminds me of that joke. <laughs> my my husband says, when I first got married, my, my rabbi told me, Matt, in your home, you're going to take care about the big things. Israel, who should we vote? We know where do we put our philanthropy dollars? You know, your wife, she's going to take care of the little things. Like what? Like which school kind of school your kids go to? What kind of friends do they hang out with? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So interestingly, so you know, while many of my friends were interested in other things, sports, stuff like that, I was hanging out now, patio, you know, talking to these uh, altars. So it was a very interesting upbringing. So very early on, I was fascinated by money, markets, economics, investing, and in fact, when I was uh, fifteen, um, in our economics class at high school. Uh, I bought 100 shares of a company in South Africa with my economics teacher. Uh, the company's still around, by the way. He and I shared the cost. Uh, and if you ever go to South Africa, they still sell frozen fish. Uh, it was a company that I did all the research. He said to me, you do the research, and I'll go 50-50. Wow. So uh, I bought my first shares at that age, and the company's still around and successful, called Irvin & Johnson. Wow. They had a fleet of ships that went out into the oceans of Cape Town, and um, caught fish, processed it on board, and froze it, flash froze it on board, and then they packaged it and shipped it. And it's still around. I was quite honored to see that when I went uh, back to South Africa a few years ago. So, um, yeah, so my background in investing is very long. Um, wow. I never, intent- I never needed to speak to a career counselor or some advisor to figure out what I wanted to do. I, I knew where I was going, and I had straight for it. Lucky you. Lucky you. I hope you did something great with the money you made off of that stock. <laughs> I'm sure well, you did. Well, it was all in rands, and of course the rands became nothing in the end. Oh, but, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, just, to give, by the way, just to give you a sense of that, we came to this country, one rand bought a dollar thirty-one. One oh. South African rand got you one dollar thirty-one. One rand now gets you about six cents. I know. I know it's really, it's really, it's really horrendous. Um, so, and um, fi- that was a financial win starting early and getting educated early and, and trying your, you know, investing acumen, any financial failures, any things that you look back at and you say, oof, I would caution young, young Selwyn against that. Well, I, uh, I've recovered, you know, not everything has worked out you know, great that I've invested in. Obviously I've got better over the years, but less risk averse, less risk tolerance. I 
you know, so obviously tried a few uh, startups and things with friends that did not work. I'm mm. passionately against them. Uh, all the venture capital and seed stuff. I had my, my run at that years ago and uh, understood very clearly that the odds are really against you. Mm. And so I don't do any of that anymore. And we don't encourage people to do that unless they're very young and they have a lot of excess money. No, I think uh, pretty early on I understood that equities were the place to invest. Um, the, the thing that came to me quite late on, though, was the real understanding of the Wall Street machine. Mm. I kind of grew up in awe of the stock brokerage community and for whatever reason I believed for years that they had superior wisdom, superior insight, superior research. And so for all those years as a CPA, I was referring to them, for you know, referring our clients to them. And only, you know, in around 2000 did the penny drop that, in fact, they had no great superior wisdom. What they had was a, a superior pocketbook focus on themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, they did not have a superior with a set of, of tools or wisdom whatsoever. And in fact, the tools they use are not better than ours mm-hmm. uh, you know, because their tools are all generating headlines. You know, mm-hmm. in, in no other business can you be on television and be dead wrong. <laughs> and, and seriously, and be back on the tube on television, you know, three, four, five, six months later. So, you know, I, I, think, I mean, you just have to read that. That is so funny and so true. Yeah. Imagine if you lived in Florida in the middle of winter, you know, some January day, and I stood up as a weather forecaster and said, today in Florida we're going to have blizzards, storms, icy weather, you know, snow and ice pack, and uh, people, you know, should be scared of uh, massive snowstorms, and you have a balmy, beautiful day. How many days do you think I would be at the weather forecaster of the main channel in Miami? Seriously. (laughs) Same in Los Angeles, okay? Happens to be a glorious day today. 70s, blue skies, I'm looking out of it. A gorgeous day. Now, if imagine if I stood, I had the audacity to come up with a weather forecast that tomorrow was going to be snow, sleet, freezing weather. Um, you just, but in the financial world, unbelievable. I can give you dozens of examples, but I must just give you my favorite. Yeah. When Trump was, in, and this is not political, it's okay. economic. Trump was being elected to presidency. Uh, I was watching television, and as the the turn began to show that he was going to win and become the president, they asked Paul Krugman, Mm -hmm. the well-known, respected by some economist who writes for the New York Times, what he thought would happen to the stock market if Trump actually won. And you can look it up, because I don't make this stuff up. He said the stock market would enter into a prolonged decline. Ah. And then the interviewer said to him, how do you think, how long do you think it might last? And he said, possibly indefinitely. Now, you know, the facts show that that was the beginning of a huge, sustained bull market. But there are so many, you know, almost everybody has got it really wrong, really, really wrong. But if you say convincingly and compellingly, You know, and you have your telegenic approach, um, you can get away with it. Yeah. So yeah. one of the things we tell people is the biggest enemy of investors is to read the headlines. Yeah. You know, it's actually funny to read the headlines and particularly to read the headlines of two or three weeks ago about what everybody was predicting. But just as I, as I said earlier, we've come through one of the strongest recoveries from the bear market in a long time. Right. In the last few months, we recovered 50% of our bear market 
No. And do you know how few people expected it? Do you know how many people were pontificating that the market was on its way down to a huge new collapse? Mm-hmm. In fact, today you can see it on the news today. The yeah. major so-called experts, you know, all predicting, but, you know, they're like, um, you know, e- economists uh, give, give great, prof- I think Warren Buffett or one of the great people says, uh, the function of economic forecasters is to give credibility to the tarot card reading profession. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's actually quite funny to, to read all the headlines and just chuckle and turn the page, which is what I do. Just, you know, oh, my gosh. I just don't read it. It's better yeah, for my well, peace of mind. All right. I want to ask you a question. You've been a very active member of the Jewish community, and uh, a lot of our conversation has alluded to, you know, our, our, our faith, uh, your proud and engaged Jew. Do you think there are fundamental elements in our faith and our value system that contribute to a person's wealth? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First of all, the whole view of money, mm-hmm. as I said, is sacred. Secondly, our view of charity, where we don't regard it as being an act of generosity. The word for staka has nothing to do with generosity or charity. It has to do with righteousness. Mm-hmm. When I earn 100 $10 of that is not mine. So to be able to look at your money, which you've worked hard for, and realize that only nine-tenths belongs to you and one-tenth does not belong to you, enables you to look at money very differently. Yeah. Think more profoundly about the Jewish farmer mm-hmm. who does his gleaning, right? He, he, he takes the crops and does his harvest. What's left behind on the field is not his Right. When the poor people coming to gather their share of the produce, he's not giving them his produce as an act of generosity. He stands back. He suspends his ownership and allows them to claim what is rightfully theirs. Mm-hmm. When a farmer observes Schmitta, the seven years of the sabbatical for the land, he looks at his land. He's not allowed to use it. He knows it's not his. So right. you understand, and it belongs to God. Mm-hmm. It belongs to God. And so this idea of being able to look at your money in a totally different way, you know, the way Jews define wealth has nothing to do with how much money we have. Pinkei yeah. Avot tells us, he who is wealthy, one who is satisfied with his lot. Yeah. So we understand money is fundamentally different to the eyes uh, of, of a Jew, completely. And so, yeah, I think, I think that is the case. And also the whole idea that we don't, uh, we don't, uh, we don't put down wealthy people. Yeah. We don't, look, you know, and by the way, we regard the act of making money as participating in God's world. Right. You know, so, so just to give you an example of that, there are certain categories of people who are not allowed to testify before a baked before a Jewish court. One of them is a gambler. A professional mm-hmm. is not eligible to be a witness. And why? Because the, the Jewish view is he's not participating in the ongoing maintenance of the world. Right. And so participate in whatever way you do creates a partnership between you and God. And we don't think of making money as a bad thing. It's the reward for satisfying people's needs. Mm-hmm. It's a very high level yeah. of existence. And it's a very high level of viewing money. But the fact is, Jews are not afraid to charge. Jews right. understand that there's value in what I've given you. And I deserve to be paid because I've given you something of value. So economics, which is the profitable exchange of goods and services to satisfy needs, 
That's what economics is. Right. Results in those people who do that well being rewarded by society, which they should be. If you made a contribution, you deserve to be rewarded. Mm-hmm. And so choose don't look askance on the people who invented the, um, you know, the, uh, the computer, uh, you know, the people who invented, who started Apple, uh, the people who started Waze. You know, they've contributed so much to our lives. Right. But how could we begrudge them to be rewarded for the fact that my cell phone mm-hmm. has five, ten truckloads of data in it that I now have access to? Why should the people who created that for me not be rewarded by me. So Judas is quite different. We don't review, we don't view money as evil. We don't view making money as a you know unholy profession. Uh, by the way, we also believe that those people who help us to make money should be fairly paid. Yeah. Wages, for example, paying your employees fairly for their work, treating them properly, paying them on time and not Fine. being told the about money. All of these things are regulated so that you have a society that functions well. And where everybody makes a good amount relative to what they've contributed. Mm-hmm. You have a very, very different uh, view of money, wealth, and economics from general society. Beautiful. I want to wrap it up with what I like to call Jewish money matters fill in the blank. So when I'm going to give you an open-ended sentence and you'll finish it with the first thing that comes to mind, all right? Okay. Sounds dangerous, but I'm up for it. <laughs> all right. Uh, when I give Miser or Tzedakah, I like to give to... To, I like to give to places where I believe it will solve a problem more permanently than simply um, giving someone a uh, fish for the day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd like to make more money because? Because I could do more with it. Something I wish I'd learn about money growing up is? It's true power. Mm. Money, spiritual or physical? Spiritual. Something I splurge on unapologetically is? Spoiling my grandchildren. Oh, good for you. What a great answer. <laughs> Selwyn, spender or saver? Both. Mm. Today I'm most grateful for? Good health, number one, and then the love of family and friends. Nice. Finally, I'm Selwyn Gerber, and I believe Jewish money matters because? Because Jews have a unique way of looking at almost everything in life, including yeah. money. Yes, beautiful. Selwyn, this was such a great conversation. Tell us where we can find you, where listeners can be in touch. Well, the website is www.rvwealth.com. There's two W's there. Mm-hmm. RVW Wealth, named, as I said, after our old friend, Rip Van Winkle. Uh, my email address is sgselwyngerber at rvwwealth.com. Anybody has a question, please reference this show in the subject line to make sure that it gets my immediate attention. I'm greatly honored to have been on the show with you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much, Selwyn. The honor is mine, and we will be sure to also note that they can uh, request their e-copy of The Wealth Blueprint by emailing me, and I will be sure to put them in touch and to get that to them. Thank you so much. Thank you, so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to Selwyn Gerver for stopping by. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know it was a lot. Selwyn was so generous with his time and his knowledge. So if you have any questions, please reach out. I'm here every Friday answering your questions. If there's anything that you want to ask regarding anything we discussed here today or any other money question, I'll be here next Friday. Be sure to send those questions at yael at yaeltrush.com or you can Instagram me. You can DM me on Instagram at yaeltrush.com. Also, be in touch if you want to get a copy 
a free ebook copy of The Wealth Blueprint. That is the book that Selwyn wrote with his son. Just email me and I'll get that to you. Also, you can reach Selwyn directly at sg at rvwwealth.com. As I said, I'll be here Friday answering your questions. Be sure to be here. Have a great week.